All right, my name is Jason. If you don't know me, I've been at Grace, my wife and I, for 12 years. I think we're working on 13 now. Um, Experientially, I have touched adoption a few different ways. When I was kind of just a middle school-aged brat, my parents adopted uh, my older sister, Marcy. She was 18 years old at the time. Um, She was a fresh convert from Brazil, and her family disowned her because of her faith, and she moved to the States with the missionary. That was back when you could do such things. I think that'd be hard to do these days, but she just sort of showed up in our small town, and the missionary family was more like her grandparents' age, and so she needed a family, and my, my family became her family, and we still spend time with her. Her and her husband, are, he is a pastor in Florida now. Um, we as a family touched adoption 10 years ago when we brought our two sons into our family. Um, they are now 16 and 18, so they were 6 and 8 at the time. And then I've touched adoption in the same way that Kenny's already mentioned that many of you in the room have, and that is that I was adopted uh, by the Lord and brought into his family. Um, but a morning like this, we're not here to talk about anyone's experience, certainly not mine. And so what we want to do is we want to drive our hearts to God's Word. So we're going to look at, there's many different places in the Bible that we could look at for biblical support, for orphan care, um, caring for the fatherless, of, of which adoption is a part of, which we'll talk about. This morning we're going to look at a psalm. We're going to look at Psalm 82, if you could open to that, please. Psalm 82, the 82nd Psalm. It, I'll be up front with you. There's not going to be any sleight of hand. Uh, it is our desire. It's my desire as well as uh, the church's desire that, that the Spirit might speak to some of us and to open our eyes, both in this service and the next, and watching, to various ways we could be more involved in caring for orphans than we currently might be as families or individuals. Some of that might be a stirring towards foster care, adoption, participating in some other way. Uh, but it's my belief, and it's our belief as a church, this is why we do things the way we do, that the very best way to allow for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes towards that is not by telling dramatic and emotional stories or by giving you uh, any number of other bits of tidbits of advice, but to allow the Spirit to work through His Word, which is exactly what we're going to do by looking at God's Word specifically out of this psalm, Psalm 82, and then we're going to be highlighting and looking at other passages as well, of which I've just decided I'm going to read many of them. You can write them down, but I don't want us to flip a lot because I think that most of what we want to see can come out of our one text right here. So I'm going to read Psalm 82. Before we read it, we'll ask for God's help um, because without Him... Uh, uh, without the Spirit and without God enabling us, then we'll be wasting the next 30 to 35 minutes. So let's, let's ask for God's help. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, we need your help. Uh, we need the Spirit not only to help us understand what your Word says, but particularly in a passage like this and in a topic like this to help specifically apply and call each of us how you would choose for us to participate in orphan care and defending the fatherless. So we need your help now, and we know and have great confidence that you will work with your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, 
Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Thank you, Lord. Basically, we're going to take our general outline from Psalm 82, and then we're going to expand it to look at other places of what the Bible says about God's heart for the orphan, God's heart for the fatherless. The first point, then, of three is, is more set up by the setting that we find ourselves in Psalm 82, and that is, this is a courtroom scene of which God is holding court. He is judging. So the first point is that God is serious about this issue. That God is serious about defending the fatherless, justice for the orphan. And here you have it visually sort of represented in the fact that God is judging. And what is he judging them for in verse 2? For their lack of justice, for their partiality, showing partiality to the wicked. We see God's, the serious nature in which he takes this issue elsewhere, many places in Scripture. Uh, ben Bader was someone in our church, and many of you remember it. They've, they've been gone for a number of years when they moved to South Orange County. And whenever he, I remember a couple of times talking to Ben, uh, he, they were involved in fostering and adopting. And uh, one time he said his favorite verse about uh, foster care, orphan care, was in Exodus 22. Exodus 22, 22 through 24. And I'm going to do this a couple of times. We're going to read some passages if you want to write them down. But you don't necessarily need to flip. You're going to be flipping quite a bit. But in Exodus 22, here's what the word says. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. It's pretty clear. Now, here's where the serious nature comes out following that. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives will become widows and your children fatherless. Ben Bader's point was this is how serious God takes. Like, if you don't give justice to the fatherless, I'll kill you and I'll make your own children fatherless. That's strong, strong language. Similarly, in Isaiah 1, 17, 23, and 24, you have the same notion of the serious nature in which God takes us. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause, the fatherless and the widow, often connected in these texts, these, these, these justice passages. Then he skips down in Isaiah later and says, talking about others, they do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow cause does not come to them, so they're, they're not following God's command here. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. The context here being the foes of God are those who are not doing this thing, defending the fatherless 
caring for widows. Deuteronomy 27, 19, cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow. People should say, amen, this is a text in which there's many curses being laid out. Cursed are those who obey and or disobey these various commands, and it shows up on that list. Malachi 3, 5 is our last one here. I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. In this case, God, instead of being for these people, God is going to be a witness against the people who are not giving justice to the fatherless. So God is serious. We all know those, you know, there's certain people that can get angry even, but their anger is not something to be nervous about or scared of. So I grew up in a very secure home. The more that I live, the longer that I live life, the more I'm, I'm very grateful for the security that I got to grow up in. And I know not all of you in the room felt that same kind of security, but the kind of security that I grew up, uh, particularly with, with both my mom and with my dad, but specifically my father, my, I, before we adopted Marcy, my brother Jamie and I, my dad would get so frustrated at us at times, and now that I'm a dad of teenagers, I totally get it in a way that I did not then. But I remember specifically, he couldn't find the pliers one time. There was a place the pliers are supposed to be in the drawer, and the pliers weren't in the drawer because the pliers are never in the drawer whenever you have high school age kids. None of my stuff's where it's supposed to be. And he bounces around the house, raging and screaming about the pliers, and my brother and I are laughing at him because my dad got really funny when he got angry. It's actually the one time when I've known that um, my sons feel very secure because they do the same thing to me when I get angry. They laugh at me because I tend to be, I guess, pretty funny when I'm angry as well. But I'm sure it's the same with me as well. There are certain times with my father that he was serious, right? You better not laugh when he's serious because when he's really angry, and typically those were moments in which it was more important than where are the pliers. It was more important than something small and trivial that was annoying. It was, it was something where he was pleading with us, usually for our own safety, our own health. And that's the distinction. Every analogy falls apart, but the distinction we see here is that God in this case is serious. He's, it's, it's, it's ramped up. All of God's word is to be taken. This is not to say this is the most important commander, that this should be cut out from the others and, and put in purple ink instead of red or something like that. It's just simply saying because of the, name, the number of times that it's listed and because of what we see God's heart after this, this is not something that we should just sort of bounce past. This is something that God is serious about it, and if God is serious about it, then we should be serious about it as well, both as individuals and as a church community. That's the first point. We're moving now, right? First point, God's serious. Second point, the command is clear. In this passage and elsewhere, the command is clear, defend the fatherless. In verse 3, we see it stated multiple times, 3 and 4. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. 
rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Four different verbs, right? Give justice, maintain the right, rescue, deliver. It's pretty clear. God takes this seriously. The command is very evident and clear what he's asking us to do. And the cool thing about it, and Kenny's already referenced this part, uh, God's not asking us to do something that he's not already in the process of doing. So God's not the kind of God who is a, a do as I say, not do as I do kind of God. Because God's already doing this work. So once again, I'm going to read some texts, write them down if you want to look at them later. Psalm 68, 5, God is called the father of the fatherless and protector of widows. The verse says, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God's already about this work. Psalm 10, 14, and then also in 18. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been helper of the fatherless. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless. So God is telling us to do something that he's already modeling. He is the father of the fatherless. He is the helper of the fatherless. Hosea 14.3 says, In you the orphan finds mercy. Deuteronomy 10.17 and 18 says that the Lord is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing in Psalm 146.9. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. So God is telling us in this passage, defend, maintain the right of, rescue the weak, the needy, the orphan, the fatherless, and we see elsewhere in Scripture, this is something God is all about. This is who God is. It's a part of his character as revealed to us. It's the command to us, not surprising. We see it already. It's other places in Scripture, Deuteronomy 24, Jeremiah 23, and then in James 1:27, the passage that probably most of us think of, if someone were to come up to you and say, what does the Bible say about the fathers? What does the Bible say about orphans? The passage in James, at least for me, is one of the first that I will think of, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So the point so far being just this. God takes this very seriously. God, the command is very clear of what he's asking us to do, and he's not asking us to do something that he's not already all about. He's already in the process of doing this, which makes the command to us different. It feels to me at least different because it's not so much like I've got to like, bust snow. I'm not having to make a new trail. God's already doing this work, and I'm just being asked to join him in that work. God's already the father of the fathers. God's already at work through the church, throughout history of caring for the orphan, for the widow, for the fatherless. And I'm merely being asked to join in that history rather than to create something anew. So here's the question. Because we don't have the application here, we just have God take this seriously, and here's what we're supposed to do to give justice to the weak and the fatherless. So we could ask the question now, we could pause and say, how? How are we supposed to do this? 
And I find it helpful, and I hope you will as well. I have found it, as I've been thinking and praying about this week, to divide this into at least two categories. It's sort of what we're trying to do as a church as well. So the first category is a, is a subset of the second. The first category is one of the ways that we can defend the fatherless is by adoption. The second category is the larger umbrella. It's the umbrella of orphan care more generally because there are ways to care for the fatherless that might not include foster and adoption. So let's take those one at a time. So the first how, how could we do this is perhaps through adoption. I've been thinking about adoption for a good while, maybe 20 years, because it's the time that Amanda and I have been considering adopting, going through the process, and then adopting. But this week, I don't know, some things that dust settled in my brain in, in some new ways that I, that I found really interesting. I started asking questions like, well, how many children in the Bible get adopted? Right? How many adoption stories are there in the Bible? And there's a few, not a lot. You have... Esther, the word adoption is not used, but Mordecai, what's the text actually say? He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father or mother. So Esther is a fatherless, an orphaned. We don't know what happened to her father and mother. And her cousin, the daughter of, it was his, yeah, his uncle's, I don't, someone could figure that one out for me. I'm not exactly sure. Doesn't really matter, does it? I got the Bible part right. I just can't figure out the genealogy part. That's okay. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle. For she had neither father or mother. There's an adoption story, right? Somebody I read could say, well, maybe the story of uh, Samuel and Eli could be thought of as an adoption story. Remember, um, Samuel's brought to Eli and given, and Eli does love him as a, as, as a son, very interestingly, and I remember I thought about this one before, Jesus' earthly father adopted him, right? Joseph made a decision to continue and marry Mary and to love this child as if it were his own son. I love Joseph and what he, just a man of obedience from a few passages we see of Joseph, Jesus' father, but there's actually, so there, there's those and some other stories, but there's really only two stories in the Bible where the term adoption is actually used. The first one is Moses. It's an interesting adoption story. Acts 7.21 says, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. The interesting part about Moses' adoption is that he didn't seem to be fatherless or motherless, but he was going to be murdered if they didn't come up with something. So Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses, brings him in, and adopts him. And the second story of adoption in the Bible is by far the one that talks about adoption the most. If you just look up the word adoption or adopt or adopted in the Bible, the story that's going to be referenced by far the majority of the time is our adoption in Christ. So when the Bible's talking about adoption, specifically adoption, it, the primary place that the Bible's going to go is towards our being adopted. Romans 8 comes up multiple places. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, 
by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness within our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Galatians 3, 4 through 7, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And even when the term adoption's not used, it's definitely very clear. Even in the very first chapter of John, for all who received him and believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, if you become a child of God, that would be another reference to adoption. So, doctrinally, adoption can be defined as the act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. It happens at the moment that we believe and trust Christ, but it's helpful theologically to separate it from justification. Right? So justification, Rob Lister talked about this a week ago, two weeks ago. Justification, the moment that we believe in Christ... God looks upon us and no longer sees our sin on behalf of Christ's work on our behalf, and God pronounces us just, sinless. That's the same moment that God adopts us and brings us into his family, but it's helpful to separate those because he didn't have to adopt us. He didn't have to justify us either, but it's perfectly possible for God to have a sinless being forgiven that's not adopted child. So God could have justified us without taking the additional step of making us heirs with Christ. And for a biblical example, we have the angels. The angels are sinless, created beings that do not seem to have the same status as adopted children of God. And even that kind of has blown my mind a little bit this week. It's like, wow, the, the angels in some way are going to be potentially, there's no sin in heaven, but they're going to be kind of jealous of our inheritance that we get to share in that they don't. The same angel that when John met one on chapter 19 of Revelation, he was tempted to worship that angel. These amazing, angelic, powerful beings seem to have the state of being sinless yet not adopted children of God. Now, I could see someone saying, okay, wait, let's just pause for a second here because this, this adoption thing is a little bit confusing because isn't God already our Father by the fact that He created us? Isn't the Bible just talk about God's everyone's father because God created everyone? And there are certainly some traditions who really like to emphasize what they could call the universal fatherhood of God, that, father is, that God is the father of all humans in every single capacity and every single way. If we emphasize that too much, we're missing a key component of the biblical storyline, and it's a really big one, and it's the one that sometimes we as humans like to try to forget, and that is that sin came and busted up that relationship with God our Father. To the point that Romans now tells us that we're not just sweet little children of God anymore, that in our own nature, we're enemies of God. Enemies of God. Think about that. Like, what is an enemy? An enemy wants to kill you. So this adoptive 
process that God does for us is not to adopt cute little kids out of an orphanage. No, God adopts enemies, justifies them, makes them pure and sinless, and then brings them into his family. Justification has this mindset of a pronouncement, like a legal pronouncement. So the idea in justification is sort of God the judge looks upon us and and declares us sinless. Praise the Lord, let's sing worship songs. That's an amazing truth. But this doctrine of adoption goes one step further to say, now the judge walks around the bench, gets down on one knee and hugs us and invites us into his family. It says all the things that Christ has earned by being the perfect, obedient son, now you get the benefits of those. Oh man, what an amazing, amazing teaching from Scripture. That we go from enemies to sinless and ultimately to adopted sons. Now, there's some implications theologically of being adopted. Uh, We get the inheritance that Jesus has earned. We get now a new family. We get brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of you may not want to be my brother or sister, but you have to be if you're going to be in this adopted family. There's other things that come with this as well, right? We get disciplined as sons now that we're adopted children of God. You might not think of that as as a benefit or a blessing, but in some ways it certainly is because a father disciplines his sons to try to bring them back in obedience. And Romans 8, 17 makes it very clear that now that we're in the family of God, we also share in the sufferings with Christ. In that same passage in 8, 17, if we're children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There's an already not yet going on to our adoption, right? There's a sense in which we are already adopted. There's a sense in which Romans 8 helps us to realize there's a not yetness that comes with the adoption. And the in-between time is a time of often suffering. Don't be surprised. There's no promise in the scriptures that adopted family members of God get to skate through without pain and suffering. Don't be surprised. Now, the benefit is our Father will hear our prayers. Our Father will care for us. Our Father is there for us in the midst of that suffering. We're no longer enemies. We're children. So that's the biblical doctrine of adoption. Now let's apply it specifically to adoption as you could see it, um, the way that it's played out even in our own family. So Amanda and I have been married nearly 25 years. From our first year of marriage, we, through the Spirit, decided that maybe adoption was something we should consider for some family circumstances and some other things that were going on. So from the very first years of our marriage, we already had a mindset that maybe adopting is something that we'd want to do. Then as we continued on, we had two of our own children. In the adoption community, I don't really embrace this too much, but sometimes you hear people talk about their bio kids and their adopted kids. Sounds like a Disney TV show or something, doesn't it? The bio kids and the adopto kids take on Dr. Evil or something like that. But we have two biological daughters that God blessed us with. And then about 
15 years ago, we revisited this idea of maybe, maybe we should do more. Maybe there's, there's, there's something else that we should do. And in our case, uh, we, it was, we checked a few different things. We looked into fostering. We checked into a couple of our different avenues, ad- adopting domestically, and just got nothing but closed doors each time. So my wife, my wonderful wife, her heart started moving towards international adoption faster than mine. This is not an uncommon story in marriages. Our wives have a sensitivity that often, not always, but often we as husbands lack. And she said, I'm I'm thinking that maybe God wants us to adopt internationally. And it didn't take long. It wasn't like I was uh, a a stick in the mud. But it did take some amount of time for the Spirit to catch me up as we prayed together about that. And, And that's exactly what we moved forward in doing. So about 11 years ago, right now, we had been matched with our two sons who were in an orphanage in Otis, and we were making plans to fly over for the first trip to go meet them. We took our biological daughters with us because we wanted the brothers, the sons to meet their sisters, and we wanted the sisters to meet their brothers. And in Ethiopia, at that time, it was a two-trip process. You flew over, and you met, and then you pass court. Here's the weird part. Your children were legally your children, but you left them in Ethiopia for about two or three months. That always felt strange. Being back here in Southern California, so I have two sons. They're legally my sons, but they still live in an orphanage in Ethiopia. And then we went back for a second trip in only a few months later. At that point, I'm only a man and I went, just the two of us. And we brought the boys. We collected them. There's so many funny stories that we could share from that. We, we got them on the plane. We landed at LAX. Many of you were there when we got off the airplane because at that point in time, the, the, the church wrapped around us in such a beautiful way that as we walked up, we had our family members there. We had church family members there to greet us off the plane who've been helpful ever since. In our situation, it was an unusual situation. We had a six and an eight-year-old living in our family who spoke no English, and that was fun. It really was. Helping them, being there as they learned English, as they began that whole process. The very first morning, I decided not to use either of my son's names so that their friends can try to guess or make fun of them rather than locate them because all their friends are going to be in the second service with them. Uh, one of the two sons woke up the first morning singing in Amharic while he was eating breakfast. Singing. How, how brave, how brave to just be facing this incredibly scary, these, these crazy, in Amharic, they called the white people Franz. That's, what the, uh, that's the name for white. So in the orphanage, they called the parents Franz. When will, my, when will my whites get here? When will my Franz get here? So they wake up in the strange house with their Franz singing. It's an amazing story. As they learn English, all kinds of funny things are happening. But what we got to see as a family, we got to see God work in our family creating us into one cohesive group. And I'm so grateful. There's been ups and there's been downs. There's been failings on my part as a father. There's been impatience. There's been frustration. There's been anger. All the normal things that fathers and parents deal with and more. But God has been good. When we got on the plane with the boys to leave Otis, my wife we tells the story that she started crying. And it wasn't like she was sad because we were adopting, but she recognized 
what we were bringing our children into was not heaven on earth called America. That America has its own flaws and sins and problems that probably had they been able to not had their family devastated by malaria and other sickness, they might not have had to wade through the particular struggles and the particular sins that come with being American. And she shared that with me, and it was very poignant. It was, very, it was a beautiful point to be thinking of. It's like, that's absolutely right. One set of sinful circumstances replaced by another set of sinful circumstances that come about because of our culture and things for us to watch out for. And then just this year, by God's grace, we've been trying to do it for the last two years, but with COVID, we actually were able to go back with our teenage sons to Ethiopia and actually travel into this very remote part in the south in a village where not only does no one speak English, very few people even speak Amharic. They speak a tribal tongue, and we took a translator with us, and we got to see our sons re-embrace cousins and uncles and extended family members who've missed them and who love them very much. And there's so many things to think about. One of the things I thought about is my sons have a family here who love them. Had the circumstances permitted for them to be able to stay here, this family would have wanted that to happen, but the circumstances simply couldn't have permitted it. So my sons have family members in the south of Ethiopia that speak one language and look one way, and family members here through grace, and cousins and grandparents, largely in Oklahoma, who look quite different. I don't even know if they speak the same language you guys speak, but they speak Oklahoman. My wife and I speak it natively so we can understand it, but... They have very different family backgrounds. So that's the first category, and I've spent more time talking about it than I intended. But the second category, and we're going to have some help in about two minutes to have Don Atanas come up and talk about ways as well as a church that we can focus on not just adoption, but orphan care more broadly. Because here's the reason it's so helpful to separate that. A couple of reasons. First of all, while I believe we're all commanded to care for the orphan, we're not all called to adopt or foster. I think some of you may be called to foster or adopt, and I pray that the Spirit's at work with you on that, but I don't think that everyone's called to, to adopt in the same way that not everyone is called to leave and move to Japan like Stephen and his wife to become missionaries, but we're all called to participate in the Great Commission, whether we move to Japan like Stephen and his wife, or we stay here and we send Stephen and his wife. And the same thing is true for orphan care defending the fatherless. The other reason it's helpful to separate it is I've adopted, Kenny's adopted, there's many people in this, fam this church family who have adopted, but what am I doing now to follow this passage of defending the fatherless? My sons are no longer fatherless. I can't read this passage and say, boop, check that. I did that 11 years ago. Don't have to do that anymore. No, no, no. What the passage is telling me, what the Bible is telling me is God's serious about this. I've got to be about defending the fatherless here and now. What am I doing now? What is the Oaks family doing today for orphan care? It's another reason that it's helpful. There's all kinds of things. Like in our first trip, one of the things, and I think it was some friends of Amanda's that, and, that told us, we went to a, 
HIV orphanage. All the kids there were HIV positive in Otis. And I remember asking my guide, when will these kids get adopted? He just looked at me because it was a ridiculous question to be asked. These children would never be adopted. Not because no one was willing to adopt HIV-positive children. That is something that still happens. But the way that Ethiopia was set up, these specific group of children were not in the system that would even permit them to be adopted. And Damaris, who was up here singing, I remember specifically playing with this beautiful young boy about the same age as her, HIV-positive. And I wonder where he's at right now. I just don't know. And that's why it's so helpful to separate merely adoption from orphan care because those children in that orphanage can't be adopted, but we could certainly figure out ways to try to care for them. Ethiopia as a country now has closed off international adoptions. That doesn't mean they no longer have orphans. They still have orphans. They've just decided that they're not going to allow them to be adopted internationally anymore. There's more orphan care needs there as well as many other countries. I want to return to the text really quick before we have Donna brought up because the final point, the first point is God's serious about this. The second point is it's very clear what God's asking us to do. And the third point is uh, this is a job that God will be the one to complete in the end. So let's go to verse 8 of Psalm 82. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Something similar, I already brought it up in in Romans 8, about when we finally receive our adoption, right? So there's the sense in which this orphan care thing will come to an end. In other words, the orphan international orphan problem will end by God's work when Jesus comes back to complete what he began. So our calling in this is to participate with our Father about his work until the time upon which there will be no more death, no more sin, no more orphans. And that gives us a victory, right? We, we're on the winning side. We're, we're, we're in a war in which we know we're going to win, and it can put some wind in our sails to help us realize where we're going. I'm going to give two application points, and then we'll have Donna come up. The first one is applying this uh, as group this size, I have no reason to believe all of us are part of the family of God. Some of you may not yet have been brought into God's family. Some of you may not yet have been adopted. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You can join God's family. I'd love to talk to you about that. There'd be many of, probably the person sitting in front of you or behind you would love to talk to you about that. Secondly, Maybe the Spirit is talking to you through this text. The, the Word of God cuts us, and maybe you're being cut right now to realize, I think I'm supposed to foster or adopt. Be open to that. I thought about in our church, I was talking to Junior about this this morning. I was looking at this baptism that's covered right now. <laughs> when it's not covered, you see it. And how many adopted kids I've seen get baptized right there over the 12 years that I've been in this church? How many different countries, how many different continents have been represented by those waters? And not only that, there's other adopted kids in our church that are still young who have not yet trusted in Jesus, who, Lord willing, will see them baptized there as well. That the nations have come to our very church through orphan care in this way and will only continue to do so. So I'm going to have Donna come up, and she's going to share some other practical story of how the church has been involved with orphan care 
and we're praying as a church of how we might be able to do this again.